You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. G'day, Kate. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. It is wonderful to be back, Owen. Oh, isn't it just? We're talking bonds today, and we're talking about this big part of our portfolios that a lot of people tend to neglect. Yeah, it's definitely not something we've spoken about much before on the podcast, is it? No, we've we've attempted to tackle this topic through Q&As and people asking these questions, and it is so vitally important. So what we've done today is prepared an episode that's a little bit different for listeners. So um, we're going to take our listeners on a bit of a journey through bonds, what they are, and everything in between. Yeah, it was quite funny when we told our producer, Monique, that we we're going to talk about bonds. The first thing on her mind was James Bond. And it's pretty common because a lot of listeners won't have heard about bonds before, or maybe they've heard about them in passing as part of the fixed interest part of their super fund. But if you are interested in better understanding this defensive fixed interest part of your portfolio, or just really want to know how to invest in bonds yourself, or just better understand the bond market that you've heard about in the news, uh, we're going to cover that and more in this episode. And we also spoke to Eva Metcalf from ETF Securities about this topic as well. So you'll hear snippets from him throughout the episode. Yeah, we've got a lot jammed into this this one conversation. And we do not want to um, say it. we're going to keep it lighthearted. We're going to keep it very educational. This is super important, this episode. Like if you only listen to one episode on bonds, try and make it this one because we will try and give you the base level of knowledge. And this is a really important part of your portfolio. Like hugely important part of your portfolio. So it's, you know, anywhere from say 10% for really, you know, growth focused investors right up to say, I don't know, 60 or 70% in retirement. So this can be a huge part of portfolios. And as we're about to explain, Kate, um, the bond market's pretty big. Yeah. I didn't even realize till I was doing research for this episode, but the bond market 
globally is even bigger than the uh, equity market. And in Australia, there's when I was having a look in as of May 2022, there's over $888 billion worth of just government, Australian government bonds issued. Um, and that's not including the trillion dollar corporate bond market as well. So it is such a big part of our financial system that we just don't hear about often because it's not that exciting compared to the uh, the share market, is it, Owen? And so you end up in a situation where like, this would be like if we're talking about property, this would be like us talking about mortgages as opposed to houses. So, you know, they're pretty similar, um, as we'll explain in a minute what bonds are, but bonds are a form of debt and they're, it's a massive market. You can imagine how much debt there is in the world, not just from mortgages, but from car companies and from governments and so on and so forth. So just how is, is this, I guess, bigger than the stock market cap? Yeah, it is. And uh, we actually spoke to Evan uh, from ETF Securities and he just um, he told us just how big it is in Australia and globally. I mean, the total global bond market, corporate, government, the whole range is something like uh, $120 trillion US dollars, which I think a lot of people would be surprised. It's actually bigger than the global equity market, which is somewhere probably just south, I think, at the moment, based on recent performance, uh, south of $100 trillion. So yeah, it's, it's absolutely massive and, and completely critical to the way financial markets work around the world. So you mentioned James Bond earlier, Kate. If we go back to James Bond for a second, I love these movies. Let's say he wanted to buy or invest in a brand new car, but poor old James doesn't have the money right now. Now, he could raise some money by selling some of his shares, which he might not want to do because for whatever reason, he might have you know tax to pay, who knows where he is in the world. Or he could sell some bonds, which basically just represent a loan by an investor, so for example, us, to him. For example, if James wanted to buy the new Aston Martin and let's say it costs $500,000, we could all chip in and loan James, say, $100 each. And he would promise to repay the $100 in, I don't know, five years, right? So for the honor of buying James's bonds, you'll get your money back in five years, and you'll also get some money in the interim. So you'll get like coupon payments, which we call them, which are like interest on a bank account. So you get that, you get your money back at the end, but you also get the coupon payments slash interest in the meantime. And James gets to buy his car. And James gets to buy his car, of course. So here's how Evan describes the bond market. Um, so a bond is essentially just uh, debt. So it's, it's how companies borrow, it's how companies finance their activities. So in terms of the flow of capital around the world and, and getting it into the right places, you, there's effectively two options. You, you can either raise equity capital, which as a business owner, that effectively means selling part of your business and then your investors on the other side are therefore effectively taking the risk that your business does well at some point in the future. The other option, uh, which is obviously very, very common and, and very highly used around the world, is is borrowing so you you borrow money and most people do that via the bond market you, you can do it via a bank but um you know bank financing is, is relatively limited in its appeal uh so most of the big corporates governments um, semi-government type institutions state governments those sort of things most of their the financing and the funding for their activities is run through the bond market so that's investors who are effectively buying these securities they they're really lending money to, to these institutions to, to effectively run their businesses. To put it simply, bonds are effectively an IOU between a borrower, the issuer of the bond, and a lender, the investor who purchases the bond. 
Now, just like putting money in your savings account is effectively an IOU between the bank as the borrower and you as the lender. Yeah, so it makes sense. You would, if we have money in a term deposit, the bank can take our money and lend that to say a mortgage or for some credit card that they've just issued. And we are putting our money in the bank. So we're in kind of like investing our money uh, in the bank and the bank is borrowing that from us and then doing whatever they want with it. That's why we get interest. Okay, so Kate, we hear a lot of big time investors, particularly in the United States, um, particularly people with lots of money, they always talk about bonds as like this important part of a portfolio. So we've put together some quotes. Maybe you can share some of your favorite quotes from these famous investors and, and what they have to say about the bond part of a portfolio. Yeah. So I was looking for a few quotes from people who are just a little bit smarter than us and what they have to say about investing in bonds. And I guess the first one to start with is John Bogle, who is the, was it the founder of Vanguard, essentially? Yeah, that's right. Yep. He started it, I believe, in the 1970s. But he said, in investing, you get what you don't pay for. Costs matter. So intelligent investors will use low-cost index funds to build a diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds, and they will stay the course. And they won't be foolish enough to think that they can consistently outsmart the market, which is always a challenge. Yes, we've heard this a lot, right? Like we, The studies tend to show that um, if you just invest in a broad index fund, um, that is one of the most effective ways to grow wealth over the long term, no matter how flashy the other investors seem to be. This next one, Kate, is from Harry Markowitz, who is one of the kind of forefathers of how we think about building portfolios today. So if you've studied finance at university level, you will know this name. So what's Harry's quote with respect to bonds? So Harry said that portfolio theory, as used by most financial planners, recommends that you diversify with a balance of stocks and bonds and cash that's suitable to your risk tolerance. Okay, so he's talking about more building a portfolio with bonds to develop you know, a, a portfolio that reflects your risk and how you want to interact with the market. Okay. Now, the next person needs no introduction, so I'll just let you riff on this one, Kate. Yes. Owen's favorite person in the world, Warren Buffett, said, it's a terrible mistake for investors with long-term horizons to measure their investment risk, and that's in quotation marks, by their portfolio's ratio of bonds to stocks. Often high-grade bonds in an investment portfolio increase its risk. So this is a, a bit of a contradiction to the last one from Harry Markowitz. But these two people, um, and even John Bogle, um, Warren Buffett stands at odds with those investors in the way he goes about investing. Because even though Warren Buffett advocates for most people to invest in bonds, there's a famous kind of like strategy from Warren Buffett which says when he dies – he wants his money to be invested in 90% um, equity index funds, like stock market index funds, and then 10% in bonds. Um, so he's very aggressive in that way. However, he talks now about the risk of investing too much in bonds, which we'll come back to in a little while, may be a mistake because over the ultra long term, stocks tend to perform better than bonds. So that's, I think that's where that quote comes from. We've got one more here, which is another really famous investor um, who's kept a low profile the last few years, but definitely is well known amongst our community. Yeah. So the last one's from Peter Lynch. And he said, in the long run, a portfolio of well-chosen stocks and or equity mutual funds will always perform a portfolio of bonds or a money market account, which is like a cash savings account. Which makes sense, right? We have seen over a very, very long period of time. If you basically look at 10 years or longer, which is the long term in the stock market, 
or in investing generally. Almost at every period, um, a diversified portfolio does better than a term deposit or a savings account. And we know that investors grow wealthy over the long term because they invest, they take risk. Um, so it makes sense. I was unpacking a few things the other day and I discovered some notes that I'd written down from an ASX investor day that they run each year in different capital cities. And it was back from about 2016 or 2017. And I'd written the note that um, bonds help you sleep well, but shares help you eat well, um, which was quite funny. <laughs> yeah, it's great because when you told me this the other day, I think that's a great quote because Bonds help you sleep well as in they reduce the risk of a portfolio, typically high-grade bonds, but the stocks over the long term are what will drive your growth. So that's what's going to increase your wealth faster. We've talked about with Chris Breike on the show before, for example, that there are certain times when bonds might do better than stocks, um, and that's the whole point of them in the portfolio. But for the long term, we can see that stocks tend to outperform bonds. Okay, great. Yeah. So I think the next thing we have to look at, Owen, is why should we as maybe investors in our 20s, 30s, 40s even care about bonds? Yeah, so it's important that we consider this part of our portfolio because when you lose money in investing, so for example, if you sell out at a loss, you actually have to gain more than you lost to get back to even. So this is why Warren Buffett's rule of number one is don't lose money. Number two is don't forget rule number one (laughs) is so important. So bonds form the the defensive or fixed interest asset class of a typical portfolio, and they help smooth that investing journey. They're less volatile than stocks, but they're never going to shoot the lights out for your portfolio. Plus, they're not without their risks of their own, which we'll get to in a minute, which is important to remember, particularly over the last 10 years, it's been a bit of a different type of environment for bonds as an asset class. So how are bonds different to, say, term deposits, cash or shares? Let's use an example. Let's take Telstra, the big telecommunications company. You could buy Telstra shares by going into your brokerage account and typing in TLS, that's the ticker code. Now, if you bought shares, you would be a part owner of Telstra's business. You'd be a very, very small owner, but you would be an owner of the business. But what happens with your shares in Telstra is that you're reliant on both the performance of the business, so they've got to make more profits, pay dividends, et cetera, and other investors in the market, like you and I, Kate, have to think that there's more value in Telstra to drive up the price. So on the other hand, you could buy bonds in Telstra. So you'll still get the the interest or the coupon payment, and then you'll get your money back at the end. Now, as you can imagine, like we're assuming here that Telstra is still running in 10 years, for example. And so we would get the money back that we loaned to Telstra and we would get those coupon payments on the way. Now, it's important to understand how bonds like this, these are called corporate bonds because it comes from a corporation, uh, find their way into your, your hands, so to speak. So bonds are initially issued in the primary market just like an, an IPO. So this is what, you know, an IPO is an easier way to understand things because typically when a company wants to go onto the stock market, they'll get in, they'll get all the investors together and they'll say, here, take some shares in our company and we'll give them to you, but you'll get them in your brokerage account. And that's what we call the primary market. It's where the initial sale happens. And it's the same with bonds. You typically have that initial sale to some investors and then they can trade the shares back and uh, trade the bonds back and forth. And that's what we call the secondary market. So this is like what you'd see in your brokerage account. Unlike a term deposit where you're locking the money away for a certain time frame with the bank, who's then lending it on to home buyers or credit card holders or whatever, or shares where you actually own part of the company, with bonds, you're buying 
a piece of a loan issued by the, a company or a government um, with the expectation that it'll be paid back in time with some interest along the way. So I think the key thing is here, you're, you're promised a certain amount of money in the future, whereas with shares, you're not promised anything, or at least you shouldn't be. Um, <laughs> and you will get typically, typically for most corporate bonds and for some government bonds, you will get interest payments along the way. So that, that's what we call coupons. I've thrown in a bunch of different examples there. We've got Telstra, we've, I mentioned government, um, mentioned corporation. What are the different types of bonds that pe- people should be aware of? One of the, the big bonds that are available to purchase in Australia are Australian government bonds. And every other government around the world, I think, probably issues their own bonds as well. There's certainly a, a massive bond market in the US. Um, but governments all around the world will borrow lots of different money to spend on infrastructure projects. Maybe they want to build some new hospitals or build roads or something like that. Um, And so by buying government bonds, you're essentially lending money to the government in the expectation that in five, 10, some of them are really long. I know some countries have like 50-year bonds that you'll get that money back at the end. But of course, there's that secondary market that you can buy and sell during that time because most people aren't going to be holding this bond for 50 years. But large corporations like super funds might be doing that. And so government bonds are often seen as less risky because you're lending money to your government. So in Australia, the Australian government's seen as a fairly safe person to lend to. So they usually, they don't pay huge amounts in interest that coupon along the way because um, they're unlikely to default. So you're saying the more reputable the place that you're lending money to, typically the lower the, the coupon or interest. Because there's less risk, there's uh, less need for a reward to get investors interested in buying your bonds. But if potentially you're a riskier government because maybe you've had some defaults or issues with money in the past, um, you might have to have a much higher interest payment along the way to incentivize investors to buy your bonds. Okay, that makes sense. And so there's also semi-government bonds. So something like the Victorian state government can issue bonds Again, for various projects, they might want to um, build some roads or some schools or something like that. These various issues carry very different credit ratings. So you can look, there's, I don't know if you've got any off the top of your head, Owen, but there's different credit rating authorities that give different, like state governments, different ratings. Yeah. So there'd be like Moody's, there'll be um, Standard and Poor's. Um, there'll be many different Fitch ratings. There are many different um, credit rating agencies that go around and look at all the different types of bonds. And they take part in what we referred to before as the primary market. When a company or a government wants to issue bonds, they'll pass judgment on that issuer to say, we think this person is risky, therefore they're below investment grade. Or they'll say, this this issuer is very reputable, therefore they are investment grade or they're AAA rated or something like that. Yeah. So there's uh, different bonds in different states. Some states allow retail investors like you and I to buy them directly and some states Um, it goes through a wholesale market or things like your super fund might be buying these bonds. And the final type that we wanted to talk about is corporate bonds. So like Owen mentioned in that Telstra example before, these are corporates. They might be listed on the stock exchange. They might just be massive private companies um, and they will issue these bonds to raise capital for various projects that they're working on. They might want to acquire a new company or research a new developmental area or something like that. And they're going to pay you that regular interest again. And 
it's really up to you to decide how likely it is that company is going to be around in 10, 20, 30 years um, and that they're going to have the ability to pay back that capital that you're lending to them along the way. Yeah, there is, there, it's clear that there are quite a few different types of bonds, which we'll explain in just a moment. So we've got those major buckets where we've got the government, serving government and corporate bonds, but then there are other things that look like a bond, bark like a bond, but may not necessarily be the typical bond that we've just spoken about. So I think there's some, maybe some jargon we need to bust. There's a a few key terms that come up time and time again, uh, like we mentioned before, coupon payment and maybe maturity date that we want to go through, just so you understand some of the language that when you go off and do your own research and look at all the material that we've included in the show notes on bonds, you've got some of that key terminology to kick off your journey. I don't know if you wanted to kick off with some of these terms, Owen? Yeah, sure. So we've got the face value, which is something that um, unless you're reading a finance textbook, you probably wouldn't really hear that much. The face value of a bond is the price at which it's issued. It's also the amount paid to you as the bond holder when the bond reaches maturity. And maturity, by the way, is just when the bond is set to be repaid. So if James Bond issues 100 bonds at a dollar for a total of $100, the face value of each bond is $1. So it's not necessarily all of the bonds put together, it's just each individual bond. Another thing that um, we should introduce is this idea of a coupon payment. The coupon payment is the interest paid each year on the bond during the lifetime of the bond. You're told upfront what this will be and it's expressed as a percentage. So if James Bond has a 5% coupon rate, you'll be paid 5 cents each year on every bond that you own. Now, there are different variations of this. You can have fixed, you can have floating, or you can have indexed. We'll tackle fixed. So fixed is just a fixed payment throughout the life of the bond. Let's say it was a $100 bond, it's $5 a coupon payment per year until the bond is repaid. A floating rate bond is what is very popular at the moment. A floating rate bond is typically linked to something. So it might be linked to, say, um, inflation, or it might be linked to interest rates so that it can rise and fall. It's kind of like the variable part on your mortgage. So here's how the ASX defines it. A common measure for a floating rate bond is the 90-day bank bill swap rate, or BBSW. This is a a benchmark rate based on actual transactions in bank bills or negotiable certificates of deposit. Typically, a coupon for these types of bonds will be expressed as a fixed margin above the bank uh, benchmark rate. So it might be like the bank rate plus 2%. So if that was a bit confusing, just think that this is like um, interest rates, that thing that we hear from the RBA, it's like that plus something. So it might be, for example, the the interest rate of the government plus 3%. So that would be, you know, for a semi-reputable borrower, but let's say it's a really risky borrower and the, the rate might be set at the government rate plus 10%. So that would be a bigger yield, a bigger return to you as an investor, but it's a riskier um, business that you're lending money to. So Evan has done a great job of explaining the yield. So this is the, probably the most uh, common phrase that you hear when we talk about bonds is the yield. So let's throw it over to Evan to explain yields on bonds. Yield is really just the return on your investment as a bond investor. So I think unlike equities where you invest a certain amount and you wait and see what the, the return is and what the dividends are over the life of the investment, you know, and where you where you sell when you when you choose to sell, uh, that that determines your overall yield or your return on your investment. With bonds, it's a little bit different because 
it's it's the end payment that's the known quantity. So you know if you buy $100 face value of a particular bond in, say, 10 years' time when that bond matures, you're going to get $100. And you may also know that you're going to receive a coupon or an interest payment, effectively, of, say, $5 every year over the life of that bond. So that's known, that's fixed. What you don't know is the price that you're going to pay for that bond up front. And so the price is really what determines the yield. So it's a little, um, for people used to thinking about equities, it's a little uh, kind of backwards in terms of um, the fact that price and yield are inversely related. So as as price goes down, yield rises, right? So, um, so if you're paying less for a bond, then your return on investment is going to be more because you're receiving those same fixed cash, cash flows compared to the, another investor who at a different time might have paid more for that bond. So they're going to have a lower yielding investment. So there's there's a little bit of different thinking there in terms of uh, equity investing versus bond investing. But if you think about it that way, in terms of you're just paying a certain amount for known future cash flows, then it's it's actually quite simple. So back to us now, one of the final things that I want to talk about is this idea of currency hedged. So most big bond ETFs and big bond funds that invest overseas are currency hedged. So what that means is that they try and neutralize the impact of the currency getting in the way of bond returns. Because if we think about it, if a bond portfolio only returns 1%, 2 3 or 4% per year, as you will know, the Australian dollar or the euro to the Australian dollar can bounce around that much in a week. So we don't want that impacting the, the return of our global bond portfolio because otherwise we may as well just invest in the currency. So what big investment banks and your ETF or bond fund provider will do is they'll hedge that. They'll form contracts with another party, typically overseas, and that party will effectively agree to fix the rate um, for the currency. And so that's how they neutralize that impact for you as an investor. So most financial advisors would recommend a currency hedged ETF if it was an international bond ETF. So that's, that's the jargon busted, Kate. So, Owen, if we're looking at using bonds as part of our diversified portfolio, how should we think about including them in it? Yeah, so if we think about our portfolio as being a core and a satellite, remember that the core is where the lower risk, more defensive type investments are, and then the satellite is that kind of thing around the outside that's a bit more risky. When we talk about shares, we typically say that diversified ETFs, like low cost indexed uh, ETFs are in the middle, in this core, and around the outside. And we might have also have like listed investment companies or LICs and blue chip shares in there. And then around the outside, we have riskier investments like small cap companies. You might have your crypto, whatever is in that really risky bucket around the outside. They're smaller positions. We can do the exact same thing with bonds. In fact, we should. So in the core, we should also have low cost, highly rated um, bond portfolios. So that could be a bond ETF or a bond managed fund. And then in the satellite, we can have higher risk bonds as well. So we would have, say, for example, high yield um, ETFs. So high yield uh, bond ETFs invest in, whenever you say here high yield, it typically means higher risk. Um, And so they go around the outside. There are another thing in Australia called hybrids. Now hybrids, it's not something from like a Teen Wolf movie. It is actually um, this idea that you can have an instrument, like an investment that kind of gives you the benefits of the bonds, like the fixed interest and those types of payments, 
but it also behaves in a way where it can have some of the growth characteristics of um, shares. So the big banks in Australia are massive issuers of hybrids. And so there's this whole industry around them too. They're like, you could probably chuck them in with corporate bonds. They're They're kind of in that bucket. And so those would be around the outside as well. So let's use an example. Let's say you've got a diversified portfolio, which we've talked about on the podcast before, might be say 60% stocks and stock ETFs, and then 40% in bonds or cash. Um, So in this instance, the balanced 60-40 portfolio might have 60% in shares ETFs. So that might include things like the uh, IVV ETF, that's the S&P 500 ETF, or the, the Vanguard VAS ETF, the Australian shares ETF. And then in the 40% around uh, for the bonds, you might have the IAF ETF, which is a composite bond ETF here in Australia, or the Vanguard VAF ETF, which is an international ETF. Now, that would probably be, you know, in the core of your, all of those would probably be in the core of your portfolio. But then you might find high yield ETFs or some type of different style of um, bond ETF that could then go in your satellite. So in short, Kate, you can think of bonds as the different types of bonds can fit both the core, which would be those diversified, um, like low cost bond ETFs and and funds. And then around the outside, we have um, the riskier, maybe high yield hybrid style bond ETFs. Mm. I think it's quite interesting that there's there's a whole risk spectrum within bonds itself. It's um yeah, just because we might think of bonds as defensive assets doesn't mean they all behave the same way. That's right. So, Kate, I think there's we've got to introduce just some more basic terminology here around what to look for um, when studying bonds or bond ETFs or so on and so forth. So can you just explain some of those things for us? Yeah, so I think the important thing when you're looking at bond ETFs or even individual bonds and doing some research is to look for some key characteristics like the duration, the maturity, the credit risk, and the diversification of the bond and what you're actually investing in. And I guess the first thing to look at is the duration of how long from the date it's issued until maturity date. Uh, Is it a five-year bond? Is it a 30-year bond? Is it a 100-year bond? Um, Because that will change how you look at it depending on what the coupon rates are and what risk you have to go through as an investor. And typically, the longer the bond, the more sensitive that bond is to changes in interest rates. Yeah, because you might, if you're using a fixed rate, you're really locking something in for quite a long period of time unless you go and then sell that bond on a secondary market through your broker or a private market. Um, And then, yeah, also maturity. I know you had some thoughts on that, Owen. Yeah, so it's important to remember that when we measure the bond side of our portfolio, you mentioned duration before, Kate, and what you'll find on the websites of publishers of like ETF websites or um, even the ETF issuers themselves is they'll have analytics on the portfolio. And what there's one key uh, phrase that they'll have there. It's called effective duration. Now, this relates to basically everything. So it kind of connects all the dots. It connects the maturity of the bond portfolio to the spread of the different bonds inside the portfolio. And what it means is, Sometimes you'll see it expressed as years. So they'll say, this portfolio's duration is six years, right? Now, what that actually means is it actually means how sensitive is this bond portfolio to changes in interest rates. So imagine an effective duration of six. What that means is if interest rates go up 1%, the bond portfolio is expected to fall 6%. 
Now, in recent years, as interest rates have fallen, bonds have become more sensitive to changes in interest rates. So the duration has gone up. So what I mean to say here that you're probably thinking like, well, why would I pick one with a high duration? Right? Why would I pick one that's going to be really sensitive? Well, what happens if our interest rates fall? Then the opposite happens. So then your the value of your bond portfolio can go up. So it works both ways. So that's one thing that they'll come across, or at least all of our listeners will come across, um, is something called duration. And I think that's important because it relates the maturity dates of the bonds to everything else. Especially when uh, older investors are hunting for yield and they're potentially looking at bonds that have higher yields, especially if they're fixed, uh, that duration and maturity question comes into play a lot. And there's the other point along with credit risk, um, some, it's often said that if you want more income when you're investing in bonds and that fixed interest asset class, you have to take more risk. So you're potentially not investing in Australian government bonds, you're investing in maybe smaller corporates, um, not necessarily the blue chip names, but you do have the risk there, like bonds are not 100% safe. You can, a company that you buy bonds of can go bust. Yeah, that's it. So a company, that's a credit risk that you talk about. There's like the credit worthiness. So, and that's what we typically call high yield. So when we see um, a portfolio of high yield companies or bonds inside it, those are the typically the ones that have a higher risk of default. It's not that common, to be honest. Like, and it's typically these portfolios are diversified, but it does happen. And so, yeah, those portfolios have credit risk. Um, there are many other risks that we can talk about, but that's probably the one that sounds most obvious to a lot of people. Yeah. And I guess that comes down to that diversification as well, especially if you're investing in a, uh, an ETF of bonds. You want to have a look through the list and make sure they're not all falling into one particular type of bond or one particular industry, that they're spread across different industries, uh, just like you would when you're looking at an ASX 200 ETF. You don't want all the bonds falling into the same category. Yeah, so that's when you look at the website of the ETF provider, you'll, they'll, sit, they'll have a pie chart and it typically breaks it down by what, which countries are you invested in. So that's really important if it's a global bond ETF. Then they'll show you by typically by credit rating. So I'll have like AAA rated down to like what we call sub-investment grades. So that's like BBB rating or below. And then they'll also mention portfolio analytics. So they'll show things like the yield of the portfolio. Uh, which industries it's invested in primarily, so you can get a you can get a sense. And for those core ETFs, we do want to spread across all of those things. So we want to spread across the number of issuers, the types of issuers. For example, in Australia, we have a problem with corporate bond ETFs. A huge part of it is actually just bank bonds. So for the big four banks in Australia, because they are the biggest issuers of bonds. So you probably think of that and you probably think, well, that's not really diversified. And that's why you need those global bonds in there as well. So that's a that's a good point you bring up. I'm just thinking on the spot here, but even from an ethical consideration, there might be companies that you wouldn't have invested in directly. Do you still want to buy their bonds? I don't know. That's just a weird tangent, but something I hadn't thought about before. Yeah, yeah, no, it's fair. Very fair because there are, um, yeah, it, it, you're supporting the company just in a different way. So do you want to support that company to do what it's doing? Well, maybe not. So the same rules apply for bonds. Mm. And I guess we've looked at some of the risks, but I know another one that we probably should talk about is liquidity risk, Owen. Yeah. So this is actually quite common and it's actually probably a bigger thing than most people realize is that bonds typically trade in huge parcel sizes. So this is why most individual investors don't invest directly in them. We'll get to that in just a second. But we're talking millions of dollars oftentimes, right? 
And if you, for example, have one of the giant bond funds from like um, Vanguard or Invesco or whoever runs one of these gigantic bond funds, right? They can't just buy and sell all of the bonds inside of the the ETF when you click sell in your brokerage account because you might only sell $10,000 worth of you know units in the ETF but the smallest bond might be you know a million bucks this is where the liquidity thing comes in now what we find what i've found over the, my journey is that when the market is in a s- severe state of uncertainty so like during the GFC or during covid those are typically the times when you just need to pay attention to what's actually going on. The rest of the time, it should be pretty much okay. But this is the risk basically that the ETF issuer cannot buy and sell quickly. So what happens is that the price of your ETF might be different to what's inside the bond ETF. So for most, like I said, for most, like, I don't know, maybe 95% of the time, this is fine, but it's just those really volatile periods. And this is a Thing that people often get concerned about because they see inside their Vanguard ETF, for example, and they'll see, oh, like up to 10% of the portfolio can be invested in derivatives. And they'll be like, but this is, why do I want to invest in derivatives? And the reason is that the big ETF providers need to use derivatives to smooth the prices, to make sure that if someone decides to sell, that they can use derivatives to smooth the portfolio's return. So it doesn't look like there's a big fall or a big jump in the value of the bonds. So that's what that is, Kate. And the other other thing which I think I should mention just quickly is this really commonly held belief that when interest rates go up, bond prices fall. And when uh, when interest rates go down, bond prices go up. For the most part, that's the general truism. So we're talking about like government bonds and that sort of stuff. But that's a risk too. If you buy a bond or a bond portfolio, like a bond ETF, and interest rates go up, there's a chance that your bond might fall in value. And we're seeing that at the moment in Australia. It might not be a huge fall, but it will fall a little bit. And the, the concern is, well, why would I buy it? And that's why a lot of people switch to term deposits instead of bonds uh, for the last few years. But eventually what happens is those ETFs start to pay more interest because the interest rates have gone up. It will take time, but it washes through the portfolio, if that makes sense. Like as new bonds, as bonds mature, they buy more bonds at higher rates and eventually it washes through. So I just thought I'd explain that. That's a risk. So Kate, how can, we've, we've talked a lot about this. Um, this is the, probably the uh, really important part is here at the, towards the end of the show. How can people actually invest in bonds? Yeah. So as retail investors, it's a little bit harder for us to buy those million-dollar bonds, as Owen mentioned, but most of us are already uh, invested in bonds in some extent in our super fund. So I just mentioned that there, and I think that's an interesting place to start the exploration, even just looking at what you're invested in and how much of that portfolio is in fixed interest and even just asking them, do I have bonds in my portfolio? It might just uh, get you a little bit more interested in the whole thing. Um, But I guess the first thing you can invest in individual bonds that, I mean, I've never done it. It would probably require a lot more research and trying to figure out how to do it. And maybe you have to buy them directly through the company. Uh, I know some do sell through um, the stock exchange, so you can buy them through your broker, Uh, but they've got different codes and things. It's it's just a little bit harder, but but you can do it. I don't know if it's that common in Australia, though, for retail investors to buy individual bonds. I don't think it's that common, yeah. Some more sophisticated individual investors will use their brokerage account to buy listed bonds, but it's not yeah. It's not as big as the bond industry in general. 
Yeah, and when I was having a look, like there's quite a few large private companies that sell bonds, but on their website it says, we do not sell to retail investors. If you receive anything from us trying to sell you a bond, it's a scam. <laughs> so maybe be aware of that <laughs> okay. as well. Um, people receiving yep. things in the mail. And so just be careful. Um, there's also bond managed funds. So we've talked about managed funds on the podcast before, but you can buy units in the fund and they will buy all of these bonds and put construct the portfolio and manage it as they see fit, depending on what they said upfront they're going to be doing with this portfolio. So it might be investing in Australian bonds or international bonds or bonds only doing a certain type of thing. So just um, you can have a look at that. They might have high minimums to invest in these funds though as well. So I have not invested in a bond managed fund either. Yeah, it could be, it could, it might only be $20,000. So, you know, according to our RASC ETF members, um, around about 20, I think it's off the top of my head, around about 20 to 26%, somewhere in that range, invest in managed funds. But typically the minimum is around about 20 grand. We've talked in the past about there's been some funds with less than that. So if you wanted, say, for example, 20% of your portfolio in bonds, you would probably want at least $100,000 of investable money, but you probably don't want all of that in one managed fund. So that's why ETFs tend to be more popular up until you know the, a couple hundred thousand or beyond. But they are an option and they are a very valid option because um, managed funds um, typically do a pretty good job of investing uh, in the bond market. Yeah. And there's also exchange traded treasury bonds known as ETBs. And so this is if you want to buy government bonds, you they've made it really easy for people to buy and sell them through their brokerage accounts. So it's an easy way to buy treasury bonds. Um, the government website actually, I'll put in the show notes, has a lot of resources. So the government's actually trying to help mm. you and educate you on how it all works. Um, there's even um, a free course on the ASX website about bonds. So there's a few resources out there from sort of independent as such sources. Um, so you can have a look at that. And there's also bond ETFs, which is something, this is a way I invest in bonds uh, through an ETF because it's a very convenient way. Um, as many of our listeners have invested in ETFs, you can buy and sell units in a bond ETF that's doing what you wanted to do. So there's quite a few different options in Australia. Just have a look at some of the major ETF provider websites um, and you can learn a bit more about that as well. So you can just buy and sell whenever you want um, units in a bond ETF. Yeah, we've got a list on the best ETFs website of all the different uh, bond ETFs as well. So I think it's worth, we can cut to Evan uh, from ETF Securities here to tell us about why bond ETFs can be a really straightforward way to invest in bonds. Um, as you just heard from Kate, it's important. So here's Evan explaining why ETFs make that process a little bit easier. Maybe just firstly, in terms of how people access bonds and, and maybe the value that ETFs bring to that market. So there are some listed bonds that are traded on exchanges, but that's a really tiny corner of the market. So most bonds are traded in OTC or over-the-counter markets where bond dealers will speak to each other and arrange deals or they'll people can buy them directly from the issuers at, at the time of issuance. But that's that's much more an institutional market. So the retail bond market is actually particularly small. So most people for their individual portfolios really don't have much choice when it comes to buying individual bonds. So that's where ETFs come in really handy. So they can buy the bonds at an institutional level package them up into a portfolio and then uh, you know sell them to investors via the stock market so they can they can trade them easily they can access the bonds 
they can get a managed portfolio. They don't need to be monitoring, you know, maturities and, and income and excess cash and, and these sorts of things. Um, so there's a, there's a, a range of different advantages to investing through an ETF. In terms of characteristics and what you should look for in a bond ETF, uh, I guess they come in a, a few different sort of flavors. You know, I mentioned earlier around government bonds uh, versus corporate bonds. So there's, there's government bond ETFs for particular countries. There's government bond ETFs that are global in nature and, and pool a whole lot of different countries together. There are corporate bond ETFs that are at the higher end of the, the credit curve. So, you know, AAA type companies and, and, and the likes. Uh, so very credit worthy type companies. There's company, there's bond ETFs for companies that are in more the, the high yield segment. So below investment grade, which means that these companies are going to be yielding more so that you're actually taking a little bit more credit risk by investing in these companies. Uh, so you get, you get a little bit more in terms of the uh, potential return but you're taking a little bit additional risk and there's, there's some potential that some elements of the, uh, the portfolio can default. And that's a real, another real advantage of using ETFs as well. If you have a, a large spread of different issuers in your portfolio rather than just one, then that, uh, that default risk as well can be diversified away. So an ETF is going to be tracking a, a benchmark index generally, unless, unless it's an active ETF. And benchmarking in, in the bond market is a bit different from the equity market. So in the equity market, you have a company, it has shares, and those shares are listed, and each company has one share. In the bond market, it's very different. You may have a, a major corporation, may have hundreds of different bonds outstanding at any one time. So in terms of the actual number of potential securities uh, involved in a, in a bond kind of benchmark index, it's a lot, lot bigger than an equity index covering equivalent markets. So you may have a, a benchmark bond index with 5,000 bonds in it, for example, which is, um, you know, you think about the MSCI world or one of those broad equity indices that, that might have, uh, you know, somewhere in the, the range of 1,000. Um, so they're, they're very big in terms of number of constituents. So even for an ETF, buying all of those bonds is effectively not possible um, and, and impractical. Some of them are illiquid if there's smaller issues, some of them are extremely small weights, so it doesn't make sense to buy them to replicate the index. So most bond ETFs actually use a, a sampling method where they don't buy every bond in the index. They buy a collection of bonds that they feel is representative of the particular index. So even, even at the, the ETF level and the institutional access level, it's not always possible to, to buy every single bond. So you know, think about it from a, a retail investor's point of view, it's it's nearly, well, it's completely impossible and impractical. And and the way that retail investors access the market as, as well isn't, uh, you know, the scale, you can't buy small portions of some of these bonds. So so ETFs really have a, a big role to play in packaging these portfolios together and giving people easy access to the bond market that way. So there you have it, folks. We've talked about bonds and we've talked about all the different types. We've introduced lots of jargon. It sounds pretty confusing at first. We really hope we haven't overloaded you. We've tried to cram a huge amount of 
content into one episode. Fortunately, we've had Evan from ETF Securities to help us explain some of these concepts and did it in a way that was really interesting. This was actually a popular topic on our Facebook community. It has been for quite uh, some time. So we're we're kind of thrilled to finally have tackled it. Be sure to use the podcast episode description because we've got a bunch of resources there. Kate's put together a whole bunch of resources, including like a checklist from uh, Money Smart on how to think about uh, investing in bonds, uh, as well as links to resources that are on online. Um, so just to summarize what we've covered, we've covered what bonds are and why we care about them. They are really important to our portfolio. Um, they make up a huge, huge part of the financial system. We've covered the main types of bonds being government, semi-government and corporate bonds. Then we talked about the different kind of like ways they're put together. If they've got you know fixed coupon payments or if they've got variable, we've talked about uh, how investors can use them in a portfolio. Remember, in a academics, quote unquote, diversified portfolio, it's 60-40, which means that 40% of it is like those bonds and term deposits and cash. So it's a big part of portfolios. Warren Buffett has famously said that he would go 90-10. So that's more aggressive. Um, we, we talked and Kate shared some ways to think about investing in bonds and how to get involved through managed funds and ETFs. And we also discussed some of the risks. So there was a lot of content in this episode, Kate. You may need to listen to it more than once. Thanks to our producer, Monique, for, for, for spinning the decks and putting this episode together in such a nice way. And Kate, thank you for taking the time to explore bonds and to, to share that with our listeners and with me. So thanks for joining me. There's certainly a lot to it. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, 
designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.